Well, hello and welcome to Polity Matters, episode 13. My name is Ben Ratliff, and I'm joined as always by Scott Edberg and Jared Nelson. And today we have the unique privilege of being joined by the moderator of the PCA General Assembly. Uh, I don't know if he's a doctor or a mister or how we're supposed to address him in public. Um, Fred Greco is with us. I'm going to let Scott introduce him and let them chit chat a little bit. Yeah, um, our our guest is Fred Greco, the moderator of the 50th General Assembly. Uh, he is perhaps at this assembly, not the hero we deserve, but the hero that we need in order to get through the business. But I thought I would just turn it over to Fred to give a little about the other parts of his ministry. We all know him concerning his uh, uh, concerning him as a polity guru. Uh, but what else do you do, Fred? Well, first and foremost, um, Scott, I am a pastor. I'm the senior pastor of Christ Church in Katy, Texas, which is basically the western part of Houston. Uh, I have been in Katy for 17 years plus. Uh, we moved here from Jackson, Mississippi, where I was a student at uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, Jackson. Uh, prior to that, I was a corporate attorney uh, with two firms in Cleveland, Ohio. I still am an attorney. That's one of those things that once you pass the bar exam, you never give it up. You just keep filing the paperwork so that if you ever need to pull that card out again, you can. Um, I'm married to my wife, Deb. We've been now married um, 27 years, and we have four adult children, uh, two of which, two of our boys, Daniel and Paul, are married. Uh, one uh, is not, Peter. And our daughter, Abigail, is a college uh, sophomore. And so um, I was drawn to polity and government, I think, partly because of my legal background and training, which was at the University of Michigan. Um, and so I have a fondness for Michigan and everything Wolverine related. At this recording, we are undefeated going into a bye, um, preparing and hoping to beat Ohio State for the third year in a row. Uh, and so... Um, I, before I was a pastor teaching elder, I was a ruling elder and a clerk of session. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of ways in the PCA. One of my quips is that I think I've secretaried about everything that you can in the PCA. Uh, I've chaired, in addition to being moderator, I've chaired the SJC many times. I've chaired overtures three times. I've chaired the nominating committee several times. Uh, I love the church and I love to serve the church. And to me, that's what church government is all about. It's not just a set of arbitrary and theoretical rules. It's principles from the Bible distilled down in a practical way to help the church of Jesus Christ conduct the mission of Jesus Christ. I don't think you can separate polity from the Great Commission. It's not that there's a section in the BCO that tells you, you know, when you can make disciples of all nations. But I think if we're going to do that efficiently and fervently, it helps to do it in a way that's biblical. And so um, I see those two streams in my ministry, pastoral ministry and preaching and polity as running together for the good of the church. What do you think about the current controversy with Michigan and uh, their head coach? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, that the NCAA hates Jim Harbaugh. They hate him because he's pro NIL money. He's pro paying the players. He's, you know, he's pro, um, multiple uh, recruiting venues, uh, et cetera. 
And I think they're using anything that they come after him. I, you know, as a lawyer, I'm not sure what they have, but what it appears at this point to me that they've found a man who's a low-level staffer on the payroll who bought tickets in his own name with his own money and uh, potentially had some buddies go and give him information so that he could convince the Michigan coaching staff he was a genius. Uh, I don't think they're going to find out that there was this massive, you know, conspiracy. Um, you know, if they're if they're trying to steal signs from Michigan State, there's something fundamentally wrong here, right? I mean, I could have coached that game, and we would have won by five touchdowns. So, yeah. I think it's going to be nothing. That's just I was going to ask you what your position was on them um, committing murder against uh, Michigan State on live TV. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to get too far afield, but I found it very interesting that a Michigan State player got thrown out and they must have had five or six on sportsmanlike conducts. You know, that culture has really gone off. And to bring it back to the PCA, that Saturday <laughs> night I'm watching the game and it's 28 nothing, And I just happened to text my good friends, Jason Alopoulos and Kevin DeYoung, and I asked them if they were deep in sermon prep at that time. And Kevin just said yes. And uh, Jason said, well, what else would you do before the Sabbath? <laughs> Certainly not watch that game. You know. So, anyway. Well, that's the most sports ball talk we've ever had on the show. So thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Wanted to uh, make a mention, a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Um, starting in January, Polity Matters is going, going to be taking a break from the Book of Church order and entering into our second, uh, I don't know if you call it season or series, we're going to work through Thomas Witherow's The Apostolic Church um, in a series we're calling Before the Book. So I just want to make a mention of that and tell the listeners to put it on your Christmas list so that you can read along with us. You want to be ready for that starting in January 2024. And at the mention of gift lists, we thought it would be fun to play a little game or give you all a little list called a Holiday Gift Guide. What to buy your polity nerd, spouse, relative, friend, whoever it may be. Um, and we're going to give you four categories of each, uh, under $25, under $50, under $100, and for you uh, uh, careless spenders, under $1,000 up there. So we're just going to work our way through these categories. I'm curious what you guys have listed. Let's uh, tell our friends out there what they need to put on their holiday wish lists this year. Jared, let's start with you, under 25 bucks. Well, under 25 I thought there's this little volume uh, by um... – Samuel Miller that Law College Press has put out uh, called Presbyterianism. It's basically his lectures from early days in Princeton. So if you want to see what people at Princeton were learning in the 1830s uh, about Presbyterianism and church government, I think it's just kind of a fascinating historical piece. And uh, it's usually like between 10 and 15 bucks. Mine is just a, a set of highlighters. So, you know, when you're listening to Polity Matters and you're taking thorough notes on every word that we say, you can correspond your 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 Polity Matters notes with the paragraphs in the BCO that they go with and the colors can all match. I like a particular set of zebra uh, double-ended highlighters. They work well for sermon prep, too, uh, if, if that's something that's up your alley. Fred? Well, I think a nice little book is Jacob Gerber's Parliamentary Procedure for Presbyters. I don't know what it's going for now. It's probably five bucks. 10 bucks at the most. It's a nice little book. I give it, I've given copies to some of my ruling elders and I recommend it. Um, it deals with 
it's kind of not Robert's rules in brief, but it's specific aspects of Robert's rules that come up in church meetings. I think that's that's right up the alley of the 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 PCA polity nerd. Uh, well, uh, isn't Ramsey's book on um, uh, on the Constitution of the Southern Church under twenty five dollars? The reprint is not much at all. You could probably find it pretty digitally. Um, but also, uh, if you are looking for your special someone, some stickers of our former or our current moderator, those are probably also under twenty five dollars. He gets no money for any of the money that I make off of his likeness, but it's probably a good <laughs> gift for your friend. Well, all right. For you cheapskates, there's a list. Let's move it up a little bit. Under 50 bucks. Jared, what you got? Um, something that we refer to quite often, and that would be James Bannerman's uh, The Church of Christ. I think it's forty nine ninety nine, so it's technically under that, but you can usually get it for a little bit cheaper on uh, Westminster Theological uh, Books or something like that. My under 50 pick, I, this serves me right for not putting my notes into our common document. Uh, our, our guest has selected the same thing I have listed, so I'm going to kick to Fred and let him let him talk about his under 50 pick. So uh, my under 50 pick is uh, Witherow's I Will Build My Church, which is a relatively new polity book. And there's a bonus here, Ben, that if you're ever thinking of taking my polity class at Reformed Theological Seminary or Birmingham Theological Seminary, or who knows what theological seminary, it's required reading. And so you'll actually be reducing your cost of taking the class if you have a copy of it. I tell people I was a carnal Presbyterian before I read that book. It changed my life. Very good. They were developing this uh, storefront for Polity Matters. And one thing that I'll be introducing (laughs) during the winter is a BCO plush for your newborn children that you have. And so if you um, need a new gift under $50, you should... Keep on the lookout for a blue plush. It's good to sleep with, good for your children to know polity even before they know how to speak. We're really going to amp it up. If you're going to spend some money, if you want to put down a little bit of cash, what would you buy your polity nerd, spouse, relative, friend, whoever it may be for under $100? You can never have too many Bibles. And mm. so I always love to get a, a nice Bible and then the next year want something different. So um, if you get like a leather bound uh, ESV with creeds and confessions. I think that will scratch some uh, some polity nerd itches there too. It was a tweet exchange between Scott and Josh Torrey that got me thinking on this one. Uh, a coffee subscription would be a great gift for all those late nights of polity study before presbyteries coming up or before general assembly uh, coming up later in the summer. There's lots of good options out there. You can go find uh, you know six months or so for around a hundred dollars. Oh, this is this is a secret getting out. Holiday matters is like this is like a big reveal, okay? For about seventy five dollars, you can get the official Robert's Rules of Order computer program. You will get it, install it, and open it up. And when you open it up, you will be back in the days of Windows ninety five. That's what the UI looks like, but. It has the best search engine I have ever seen related to Robert's Rules. You can find anything very quickly. And I have used it to great effect now for a couple of years. And the reason why I say it's a big reveal, Coffin didn't know about this. Brian Chapel didn't know about this. I had to send him a note to where he could buy it. And like five minutes after I sent him the email, he sent it to his executive assistant and said, follow this note and get this for me. So if you want to really be a polity guru, 
You can, you know, if you've got a, a, a small laptop that you can put it on, you can have that at presbytery meeting and people will think you are a genius and all you're doing is just simply searching. It's just, it's wonderful. Is that the most recent version as well? Yes. So it just looks old, but it's rather new. Yeah, it's just the UI looks like I said, like it's made from Windows 95. Just, you know, if you can picture what the window itself looks like yeah. and what the menus look like, it's definitely Stone Age. But it's actually fast um, and it's completely up to date with it's the latest version. Well, mine isn't as good as that. I just have uh, buying the latest 2023 BCO with a commentary that's out of date uh, with Morton Smith. Um, both would be good resources for under 100. Uh, maybe Fred can bolster that someday with a full revision of, of a commentary, but I think that's a good purchase for under 100. All right. Th there's really only one reason we have an under $1,000 category, and that's for something our guest is going to share, but we still came up with some other things. Uh, Jared, what would you suggest for under $1,000? Uh, that was hard. Something I wish I got when it was under a thousand was the <laughs> Westminster uh, minutes. Um, I always was like, I'll put it off, put it off. And now it's like $1,200, but maybe you could find it under a thousand somewhere. So uh, that would be, that would warm any, any polity lover's heart is to get a copy of that Chad Van Dixhorn's uh, editing of the Westminster assembly minutes and papers. Honestly, what's another 200 bucks if you're already a thousand, right? So my my recommendation for under a thousand it's not quite as steep as a thousand i think it comes in around three or 350 would be an 18th century barrister's wig for all of your live action polity role playing that everyone's out there doing polity larping is an underappreciated um, hobby and activity and probably because of the cost of these wigs so it's a good thing to put on your list at christmas time uh, get it as a gift and go out there with your bco and polity larp around the real world so I don't know how much it costs because I received it as a gift from my friend, uh, Pastor Joe Christman, who's in the Chicago area. But I think right now, as we speak, I am the only one who is the possessor of a wonderfully leather bound copy of Robert's Rules of Order. I mean, it's gorgeous. He had it done by one of the Bible rebinding companies. So if you think about what they do, so it's not just bound in leather. It's like the Robert symbol is embossed on the front. You know, the spine has like the burnt in title and symbol and 12th edition. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then just to go along with it is a slimmer volume of all the Westminster standards leather bound. I think there are probably other copies of that that could be found somewhere, but they're a very nice set. So I don't know exactly how you can get them, but you can, you know, find Joe's contact information on the internet and uh, ask him where to go to get this lovely edition. I believe it was Cherry Hill Bibles. They do wonderful work. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah. Well, mine is the same thing that Jared recommended for his under a hundred, but it's better. Uh, you could get a Schuyler um, ESV Bible with creeds and confessions. That's a little more premium. Won't the leather won't flake off on you on your pants and your nice white shirt. Um, but will actually last a lifetime. And so if you just spend a little more money, uh, you could have uh, a much better Bible experience. And you may have enough after that uh, to buy um, uh, to buy Fred's leather-bound Roberts because it's not that not too expensive. Very good. Well, listeners, hope this helps you form your list to give to your loved ones. Um, I don't know if I would encourage any of you listeners to give any of these things to your loved ones, but when they ask for your list, this is what you can hand them. 
all of that being said and set aside, let's begin to look at Book of Church Order, Chapter 8, The Elder. This is really the next step on the path that's been set out by BCO 1-1. We've seen the church and its members, and the third head under which Presbyterian church government is comprehended is its officers. Last week with Steve Tipton, we considered officers in general uh, from BCO 7. The ordinary and perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons. And, and BCO 8 is going to open up uh, for a longer discussion on the elder in particular. And all of this discussion about officers, just, just to kick us back and remember the preface, we can't forget about the preface, especially the first part of the preface before the preliminary principles, um, th- that wonderful treatment of Christ as the king and head of the church. Don't forget about what it says related to him ruling in his church. It says it belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws under the edification and establishment of his kingdom. That's what we're talking about is how Christ rules his church. We're talking about the officers in particular now and the elders beginning today. Gentlemen, uh, let me open it up. What What's on your mind as we begin talking about the elders um, of the church and the elder as a particular office? we notice in our BCO is that uh, there is one office for elder, and in, within that office, there are two classes, which we'll probably discuss further, but it's a good presupposition as you begin to read this chapter to distinguish um, it in that manner, that it's one office. We, are, we have only one office for our, our elders, and the two classes being teaching and ruling. Yeah, if you were to look this up in the Northern Presbyterian uh, Commentary by J.A. Hodge, you're going to have two different chapters, one for elders and one for ministers, as they break that up. Um, Although even he uh, is interesting, he makes a distinction that um, Presbyterian and Episcopal ideas are different. You might think Episcopal is kind of three office too, right? Deacon, uh, priest, bishop. But he says, actually, that's, that's kind of like one office. They don't really have deacons like we have deacons. They have kind of a diaconal assistant that's working their way up to a priest that's working their way up to a bishop. So um, between two and three office, even sometimes the uh, the three office will sound a little bit more like, okay, we're but we're not that three office. And then two office, we're going to make distinctions that it's, that's why they sometimes say it's two and a half office, because um, there's some distinctions between teaching elder and ruling elder that are important. I think that um, this principle, this discussion about number of offices comes from an important biblical principle that needs to be upheld, which is the equality of authority of both teaching and ruling elders. I think that's a very biblical principle that is easy to uphold. However, when you're trying to do that in practice, it creates some difficulties. So as I tell my polity classes, the PCO really is two and a half offices. We're not really a two office church. We're not really a three office church. There's some aspects that are two and some that are three. So, for example, I will quip with people that I'm living proof that we're not a two office church because I was ordained in 1998 as a ruling elder at Grace Presbyterian Church in Hudson, Ohio. And then I was ordained as a teaching elder pastor in 2006 by the Houston Metro Presbytery. And if there's only one office, you should only be ordained once. Now, I know that there are some presbyteries that do not ordain teaching elders who have been ordained as ruling elders, but really that issue is all over the map, and so that's a difficulty. And then, of course, there are aspects that I'm sure you'll get into in future episodes 
ruling elders aren't permitted to preside over the Lord's table. They're not permitted to conduct baptisms generally. Uh, they're not permitted to preach regularly unless they're licensed. So there are distinct differences between teaching and ruling elders. But in many ways, they're exactly the same. All of our permanent committees are balanced between teaching and ruling elders. Uh, commissions are to be balanced teaching and ruling elders. There's equality of votes between ruling elder commissioners and teaching elder members of a presbytery, for example, and commissioners at the general assembly level. And so I think it's easy to see that these two classes of elders are very similar in many ways, but it's also easy to see that they're different and it's hard to describe that, which is why I think we have kind of a mix of elements in our book. Even chapter eight is basically two chapters from the old book that were combined together. There was, as I think Jared said, there was a chapter on ministers, a chapter on the ruling elder. And now what you've got is a chapter on the elder that basically 80% of it regards a teaching elder and 20% of it relates to a ruling elder. So um, this is a very interesting theoretical question. Um, I'm not sure that it needs to be made more of than that in the life of the church. Well, let's get into the first paragraph, BCO 8.1. This office is one of dignity and usefulness. The man who fills it has in scripture different titles expressive of his various duties. As he has the oversight of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. As it is his duty to be spiritually fruitful, dignified, and prudent, an example to the flock and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ, he is termed presbyter or elder. As he expounds the word and by sound doctrine, both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer, he is termed teacher. These titles do not indicate different grades of office, but all describe one and the same office. I want to help us work through this in an orderly way um, with such a large chapter. We need to try to maintain some amount of decorum. As far as I can tell, there's three steps of thought here that we can use to discuss this. And the first is just that, that small sentence at the start that the elder is an office of dignity and usefulness. Um, I think some of y'all probably have thoughts on this on to elaborate a little bit about this statement just on its own. What do y'all think? The multiple titles that are described in this um, text are important for us to think through various aspects of one office. That's really a hallmark of Presbyterianism. Um, you know, Episcopalianism divides presbyter and bishop into two distinct offices, um, whereas it seems that Paul uses those terms interchangeably in the pastoral epistles. And so, I think this is important for two reasons. As Presbyterians, we don't see kind of a hierarchy of office of elder. And then the second thing is to be an elder requires multiple gifts. For example, one of the ways I describe this is if you're going to be an elder, you have to be a shepherd and you have to be a ruler. Now, we understand in a plurality of elders, some men are going to be more gifted in the shepherding area. Others might be more gifted in the ruling area but they have to have both. And if they don't have both, they're not elders. I think that's very important and very practical when you're thinking about things like taking nominations for officers in a congregation and the way you describe the task. This is not a board that meets and just issues decrees. This is not just a people person that walks around and keeps people happy. An elder is someone who has to have gifts that tend toward both shepherding and ruling. 
we wear many hats. Uh, I think that's what this section reveals that, um, and that's with these various titles that as bishop or pastor, it's the work of overseeing and caring for the flock. Uh, as presbyter and elder, it's being an example and governing them well. And then as teachers, expounding the word and and teaching. And so the, the elder is not a one-trick pony, uh, but he puts on many hats. And I, and I think you see part of this in the training uh, of a pastor or even in the training of a ruling elder, you're learning many things. Um, when you're training your ruling elders, you go through theology in order to um, shore up the confession, but you're also teaching other things uh, as it relates to government, but also over pastoral oversight. And so it's kind of hard. You're thinking, how do I train men quickly um, when they have a lot of uh, different hats that they must put on as their duties um, require them. And you see that in the work of the pastor as well, as he goes to seminary, it's not a, a quick degree. You have to study a wide range of various disciplines in order to be prepared to do each of these duties that this section requires. Yeah, I think this is picking up a little bit on what, um, in the Bible, if you find the word presbyter and you find the word uh, episcopoid, that they are interchangeable. Uh, one refers to elder, the kind of the, we would say the the dignity of the office, and then overseer would refer to um, what their duties are and is more equivalent to their pastoring. Um, I, I do think it's interesting in thinking about deacons and ruling elders and teaching elders. Uh, it specifically points out that there's not to be uh, different grades of office. Um, but in reading Ramsey, it was interesting that he actually specifically says the opposite of that, that there are three grades of office of which minister of the word is the highest and deacon is the lowest. So I wonder if uh, if Morton Smith maybe had something in, in mind here. Maybe he he snuck that language in there to say Ramsey's wrong, and here's what I think. Uh, but usually we talk about this when we talk to somebody about taking a call to be either a deacon or an elder, that you need to have what fits your, your, um, your skills and not see, well, deacon is just a stepping stone to being an elder. They have different skill sets, and some people are called to be deacons their entire life. Um, some there might be some movement that happens there, but um, I don't. I think uh, there's some wisdom here in not seeing them as stepping stones to get higher. Anybody have any uh, thoughts on the change that happened in the 47th General Assembly, where they took out the word grave and replaced it with uh, spiritually fruitful and dignified? Against changing the BCO. I, I can't say that, Ben, because that would make me guilty as charged with Howie. Were you the author of that grave change from BCO 8-1? I was not. I was on the I was on the overtures committee the year they tried to make that change and, and we turned it down. And then the next year I was not on the overtures committee and they passed it. So you can draw your own conclusion from that. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh Fred Greco failed us and didn't protect and preserve the constitution of the PCA. <laughs> You're all over the place. Didn't you call him a hero when we introduced him earlier? Uh, it's however I feel in the moment, man. <laughs> man, we're, we're, we're going a little faster than I expected. This is good. There's so much here. 8-2. He that fills this office should possess a competency of human learning and be blameless in life, sound in the faith, and apt to teach. He should exhibit a sobriety and holiness of life becoming the gospel. He should rule his own house well and should have a good report of them that are outside the church. 
I don't know if we want to spend so much time getting into every detail of this paragraph, but but I'm interested in y'all's general impressions, right? It's it's telling us who or what an elder is to be. There's clear allusions here to First Timothy 3, which you guys may want to bring up. Give me your general thoughts. Let's talk about some of the details, whatever suits you. What, what stands out here? I like how Ramsey orders it and two different ideas. He, he breaks it up into two groups, uh, internal qualifications and then external qualifications. Uh, the moral internal life, uh, sound in faith, blameless in life, and then the external uh, ruling his own household well. I, I think it's helpful to frame uh, this section in that way, that uh, to be called to office, you must be qualified both internally and externally. Uh, and that is outlined, I think, pretty clearly, quickly uh, in BCO 8.2. Yeah, this includes uh what an elder is supposed to know, but also how he is supposed to live and how he is supposed to lead or rule. And um, the, to tee up Fred, I, I was struck when we were talking about changes that might happen within the, the BCO about how much the First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about the character uh, and um, uh, the life of an elder versus how much he's supposed to know. It's just apt to teach. And it seems like the rest is... Uh, focusing on character. Yeah, and I think one of the great challenges for our courts, especially presbyteries, is overemphasizing teaching and competency. Now, on some level, that's as opposed to character. On some level, that's to be expected because if a man's coming for office in a local church as an elder or a deacon, he's been there much longer He's much more well-known by the court, whereas a man coming into a presbytery typically has had one or two meetings with a committee and, you know, an hour on the floor or something like that. There's There may be reports about his character, but they don't know him intimately. And I think a reminder to courts to focus on character, because Paul focuses on it so much, is, is I think, crucial. And I think it, it just makes practical sense, too, because, you know, one of the things I tell my polity class is I don't know a single man who lost his call or was asked to leave because he misexegeted Romans 8 ever. Now, now maybe you guys know of one guy. What causes churches to blow up and pastoral calls to blow up are character issues, almost always. Conflict between people and character of either the minister or elders or congregants, that's almost always the source of consternation in a church. And I think we need to spend as much time as possible, you know, delving into that. And what I hope is this change will cause presbyteries to do practical things in their exams, like ask for um, reports, criminal background checks, credit reports. Uh, references from people close to the person. Um, a very important thing would be to, to ask the man for references and then ask the references to give references so that, you know, you're not just getting five, you know, advocates. Um, this is, I think, really important for the health of church. Yeah. And in examination of an elder, we have to think, have we asked questions about what does it look like in your life to mortify sin? Um Tell us about what repentance has looked like when the last time was you confessed you were wrong to somebody. Um, if they can't give you any instances of that, there's a big red flag. Um, what are your spiritual disciplines? Things like that. And um, I think some of that gets into the proposed revision there. 
um, that there's at least a proposal to uh, add some language in there that's before the Presbyteries right now in 2023. Yeah, so the amendment that's currently before our Presbyteries is to insert a sentence, uh, what, second to last in the paragraph. He should conform to the biblical requirement of chastity and sexual purity in his descriptions of himself and in his convictions, character, and conduct. Scott, you've been tracking this. Uh, how's it being received? What's the significance of adding this sentence? Uh, yeah, um, about 20 or so Presbyterians have considered the amendment, um, and it's not really controversial. It, it's about as controversial as last year's item three, which passed overwhelmingly, but had the most detractions. Uh, that item was the one on convert judicial commissions versus judicial committees. Um, and so it seems that the Presbyterians are receiving this uh, amendment well. This is a, a do overture from last year as it relates to sexual purity um, within our church. Um, we've had a few of these because of the issues, some perhaps antinomian-esque issues as it relates to sexuality and mortifying sexuality. Um, so this is dealing with uh, side B, uh, Christ uh, Christianity and the Revoice Movement in hopes to better um, ground what is already implicit in our Constitution, explicit in Scripture, making it explicit also in our Constitution. Fred, you've seen the many, many General Assemblies go by and amendments passed and, and added to the BCO. What do you make of this? We've been talking about this for several years now, the matter of chastity and sexual purity. Are we coming to the end of this discussion, or should we expect to see more things in the future? Yeah, I, I'm not day, as data-driven as the esteemable Spreadbird, but he has helped to give data behind my kind of sense. And I think the data backs this up. I would say two things about this. First, I agree. I think this language is going to pass overwhelmingly. Um, it was something like 90% at the assembly. And, there, and if I recall correctly, the first person that got up called the question. So there wasn't even any debate. Um, but secondly, I expect this language to end this phase of amendments to the BCO. You know, one of the things that's been in the background here is, you know, what is enough? When are we going to be satisfied with the BCO? I think when and if this passes, that will end. I don't expect to see any recent future spate of amendments on sexuality on this area of the Book of Church Order. And there's much rejoicing. All right, y'all Y'all content to move past two and three. BCO 8.3. It belongs to those in the office of elder, both severally and jointly, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted, make disciples and demonstrate hospitality. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people being careful and diligent and seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. I just kind of want to go off in shame and, and confession and repentance after reading a paragraph like this, the duties of an elder laid out 
This is what we're called to do, what we're responsible to do. Again, like I've been doing, I told you guys before we started recording this, I'm just here to facilitate in many, many ways. What stands out to you guys here? This is a packed paragraph. Yeah, it's another paragraph of lists. We've already had a couple of lists as we've begun reading through BCO 8, and this is perhaps the most extensive, and it is a high calling. Uh, You see that all of the duties that are outlined here, um, you you might die trying to fulfill all of those to completion um, in one week. Uh, It it is a high order. Um, I, I kind of like thinking about it as we have various we're proficient and more proficient in some of these areas less proficient in other areas i've seen it on every session i've served alongside and on uh, some are better at some of these things while others are are not as good at some of these things you have pastors uh, you have elders i should say that are great at shepherding um, we have a guy that's in hospice right now within our, our congregation some of my ruling elders are really good at visiting him they love visiting him. They love reading with him and singing with him and praying for him. Uh, but that's not everyone on the session. Um, that's not all of their gifting. And so you see all of these duties that we're called to do. And some of us excel in others while we are lacking and are probably melancholy in, the, in how we lack in some of these other areas. Um, but these are all the duties that we're called to do. I think one thing that's really important about this section to remember, you can be overwhelmed by the list but we should be overwhelmed by what we're called to in following the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Every Christian should be overwhelmed by the call to take up his cross and deny himself every day, just as one example. I think an important thing here is to see that this listing, this calling, is not different in order than what private Christians are called to. In other words, elders are not different kinds of Christians. They're not super Christians. They are merely to be exemplary in these areas. And by that, I mean to be an example to the flock, to lead the flock in following Jesus and in themselves demonstrating these spiritual gifts and characteristics. Um, That's not to denigrate the office of elder. I I think we, we do ourselves a disservice if we view the elder as being wholly other than the congregant. I would note just some areas in there that we've seen lists before, but maybe some areas that we have trouble in. Um, I find it interesting. It says take oversight, not only of the spiritual interest of the particular church, but also the church generally uh, when called there unto it's, there's not just a responsibility to the local church, but to uh, the other churches in your presbytery and even in the denomination um, so it's not a waste of time uh, to be focused on those things. In fact, as part of your job description, you can get over um, involved there to the point of neglecting the local church. But um, churches actually should be helping their elders, whether ruling elders or teaching elders, get to Presbytery and get to GA if they possibly can afford it. Um, the instruction to visit in homes, uh, I think, is something that had been lost a lot Um there was a book that came out about what 12 13 years ago um Whitmer uh the shepherd leader uh that tried to walk elders through uh like sessions through what does it look like to shepherd your people well and and trying to recover some of that uh Richard Baxter has a book that will will make you feel really guilty about uh, all that you're not doing in home visitation if you read it um but also um elders are supposed to evangelize that struck me too i mean 
to think about the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy, who's a pastor. He says, don't um, to do the work of an evangelist, even though he's not an evangelist. You know, that's one of the duties that's given to um, elders to do, even if they're awkward at it, even if they uh, say, well, I'm not gifted. I'm not, I'm not given the gift of evangelism. Well, it doesn't look like Timothy was either, but he was told to do that work. Um, so that's something else we're uh, told to do. And then also the um, prayer aspect. I think Doug Kelly probably talks about that uh, a lot. If you ever heard him about the loss of the prayer service, um, you know, they did that, that. There was an article that came out looking at um, how many PCA churches still had something of an evening service. I wonder if you asked about prayer service, if that number would be even uh, lower. Um, but there's a lot of blessing that comes from uh, getting your people together to pray in some context, whether it's a full service or uh, a group that gets together. So there's a lot of stuff there and some things that maybe we struggle with. I don't know if anybody else has something in there that stood out to them to say, this is something we need to to uh, get better at. Well, Jared, I'm interested, particularly you have a note about catechizing the children. Can you explain what you mean by writing that down? Is there something in here that's changed? Yeah, in 1980, this is just a, a language change thing. Instead of the protection and nourishing of the children, it used to say catechize uh, the children. So this is another of those where they try to update the language, where maybe in the 1980s they weren't using that language, where actually now that language has come back. So it makes me think like, you know, when we start changing words like grave earlier, if we're um, we're being a little bit too scrupulous on updating the language, that in fact that language might actually not have uh, fallen away as quickly as they thought it was. It's a good place to start. I mean, I think about, you know, there's some books out there written. Um, Holopolis has one. Uh, Charlie Wingard has a book on new ministers, you know, sort of the, just the basics of, of ministry as a pastor. This paragraph's not a bad place to start if you're trying to figure out how to be a pastor. You know, if you've got a new call, if you're just kind of on the ground fresh, you don't know what to do, you're learning how to do it, start here. Visit people in their homes, instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children, set a worthy example. Um, Paul tells Timothy that setting that example and humility and just, just doing what's before him uh, will save both himself and his hearers. All right. When there's silence, we move on. <laughs> Eight, four, as the Lord has given different gifts to men and has committed to some special gifts and callings, the church is authorized to call and appoint some to labor as teaching elders in such works as may be needful to the church. When a teaching elder is called to such needful work, it shall be incumbent upon him to make full proof of his ministry by disseminating the gospel for the edification of the church. He shall make a report to the presbytery at least once a year. Now I'm confused about this paragraph and I'm glad that Fred's here um, because maybe he can explain it. Although I think Scott has read a little bit too. This is confusing to me. What's the difference between eight, four and what we would call an out of bounds uh, call, which is going to come on a little bit later in this chapter can you guys make the distinction for me? What's going on here? Well, I think there's some overlap, um, but it's not complete. So to give you an example, 8-7 would um, uh, include a call, a pastoral call that was outside the bounds of the PCA. So if a man was given approval to, to pastor an independent church, that would come under 8-7 but it wouldn't come under 8.4. And so it's my understanding here that this is one of the results of the combinations of the two chapters into one chapter and in the hmm. editing and paring it down. Because I believe in the old uh, PCUS book, needful work was actually defined 
in a way that, you know, Scott has made some comments about. It actually said a needful work like Bible professors, like seminary professors, uh, et cetera. And it actually listed out what that would be. And I think it, you have to have an understanding, which is kind of common. And, and I think, you know, Scott can list out what he thinks they are. And I agree with them. It's those works that are not specifically pastoral in um, calling, but they involve teaching and preaching in some areas. So to give you an example, if I'm in a presbytery and a man is coming to take a call at a Christian school as a Bible teacher, that could potentially be a needful work. But if a man is coming to work at a Christian school as a math teacher, I would say it is not. And so some of that is up to the presbytery, of course. But there are obvious examples, you know, the state clerk of the PCA, uh, committees, uh, permanent committee coordinators and, and, and chairmen. Um, these are um, needful to the church. And um, they could actually be, this is again where there's disjunction. So the state of clerk of the PCA isn't covered by 8-7 because he's within the jurisdiction of the PCA. But it is covered by 8-4 because it's a needful work. Whereas you could have someone that is both not a pastoral call, but a needful work, a professor at a seminary, a place like RTS that is not a PCA institution. That would come under both eight four and eight seven. Scott, you've thought about this. You want to add anything here? Yeah, the, just a quick list. Um, just to summarize it quickly, these would be works like Bible teachers, uh, college professors. The clerk is uh, just said coordinators of our assembly, college and seminary presidents, editors of church papers. Um, chaplains are dealt with a, a, a little later in in the in in this section. Um, but it, I think the the warning should be for any. Uh, Presbyterians to show restraint. Um, obviously, there is some ambiguity in this passage. Um, can can my job as a plumber be included in eight seven or eight four if I'm evangelizing or if I'm working for a Christian plumbing plumbing guild? Um, you, I think that we should be careful and exercise caution and restraint when granting calls um, like this, uh, both eight four and eight seven. Uh, the presbytery shouldn't allow any. And so some examples that may seem like they could fall under this, like say if uh, a man within our presbytery accepts a call to serve um, a church in a non-ordained role uh, that has no ordained work uh, bound within it. So say he's um, serving a hired staff for children's Sunday school or something. Uh, it's the on the onus of the presbytery to determine uh, whether that work is, whether he truly needs to be ordained for that work. And so there should be some caution um, and restraint as presbyteries grant this. They shouldn't just do so willy-nilly. Um, like, oh yeah, he was ordained. Um, and since he was ordained before, we should sustain that ordination if he's not actually doing work that requires um, an ordained status. 
that last sentence that talks about making a report once a year, you know, that's common to out of bounds uh, ministers and common to evangelists as well. Is, is that intended to, to make the point that this is not a permanent situation for a man? I mean, I suppose it could be, you just have to keep renewing it. You know, they obviously have to come back and report. What's y'all sense of that? It, that, that this is something a teaching elder could do for the rest of his, his life um, until you know he goes on to glory or retires, or is this just, you know, I could, I could see a guy who's without a call getting a job that would be a, a needful work in a particular location um, as a Bible teacher, a professor somewhere until he finds a call to a church again later. Um, is this, is this a permanent thing? I think it's meant to um, make a line of connection for accountability Whereas if you're in the ministry of the church, you have elders that are attending Presbytery. There's a little more um, uh, touching of accountability. Whereas if you're serving in a, uh, in a ministry that doesn't have a session or doesn't have a congregation under you, you might be easily lost. Um, and so I think it's to ensure accountability and to preserve updates so that the Presbytery is informed about your present and ongoing work and, and to learn changes. If they weren't allowed to, if they didn't make yearly reports, um, who's to know whether they had a change of job or not? <laughs> no. Uh, no one dissolved them. No one did anything of that nature. So, so they may have become uh, the king of the plumbing, the Christian plumbing guild, and we're, he's still serving as an ordained minister. Um, so I, I think it's to help that contact of accountability and to re-up and to get updates to ensure that he's still continuing um, in the vocation he is in. You have very interesting plumbing guilds up there in Troy. You know, I'm very interested in uh, plumbing. (laughs) Well, that's all we have time for today. And so, as Steve Rogers would say, this podcast is over. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to come back next time when we finish our conversation with Fred about BCO8, The Elder. If you're interested in learning more about anything we spoke about, check out the show notes in your podcast player or go to polymatters.org. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on Twitter or Facebook at Polity Matters and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. If you have questions or comments, you can contact us at polymattersfeedback at gmail.com. Many thanks to our guest today, Fred Greco, for being with us. He's the pastor of Christ Church in Katy, Texas, and he currently serves as the moderator of the PCA General Assembly. We'll provide links in the various places on the internet that you can find him. Scott is the minister of Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois. You can find him on Twitter at S. Edberg. Jared is the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. He's on Twitter at Brother Nelson. And I serve as the associate pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Ratliff. Thanks again for spending time with us. Y'all take care. I, not not all of this is going into the episode so for what it's worth. Just an audio podcast, or do you guys have a YouTube version of it too? Not yet. Okay, so I don't have to worry about if I wave my hands or anything, right? No, we encur- like a- we encourage hand waving. Yeah. You can tell how Scott and I are dressed up that we're concerned about that. Yeah, I see that. I see that. I'm on That's vacation good. right now. Is that what you call it when you have a baby? Vacation? Yeah, paternity leave, whatever you want to call it in modern parlance. <laughs>